James Heline. How should we introduce you? Is uh, world renowned? Well, that might be pushing it a bit, but uh, uh, I've been collecting uh, Tom Swift books for quite a long time. Uh, probably read my first ones in 1975 when I was eight years old, and uh, I found some copies that my dad had purchased used, and they, uh, uh, two of them had dust jackets, uh, Tom Swift in his photo telephone, and Tom Swift in his scissor camera. They were both from the original series. He uh, wisely did not allow me to take them to school to read, uh, but he did let me read them. And he had picked them up as used books, and uh, that was a, a great introduction to the Tom Swift series. And of course the focus is inventions and science and technology, and that plays quite well into the mind of a motivated young boy who's interested in beating the world. Well, uh, Tom is always inventing the, uh, the, the transportation device or the gadget that will be just what's needed for the adventure that he's going to have. And that's true of the original Tom Swift series from 1910 to 1941, or the more uh, familiar Tom Swift Jr. series from 1954 to 71, or the three later series that came after that. Reading the original Tom Swift series, which was the only one I knew about for many years, uh, actually caused me to, uh, to study physics in uh, both high school and college. Didn't finish that degree, but uh, it certainly uh, affected the way uh, my life uh, went for, for quite some time. And you're not the only one. Um, Steve Wozniak? Steve Wozniak, Isaac Asimov, uh, Ray Bradbury, Robert Heinlein, uh, Clive Kessler. Uh, just so many people have been influenced by either Tom Swift or Tom Swift Jr. And uh, uh, if you uh, start searching, you'll find that there are uh, people who claim that, uh, that Tom Swift, in one form or another, inspired them into their careers. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if somebody like uh, Dick Rutan, the, uh, the aviator, or certainly Chuck Yeager mentions Tom Swift. Um, Stan Lee, the creator of uh, Spider-Man, considers him influential. Perhaps you could uh, talk a bit about the, the, the person who created this character. What was the genius behind the character that, that caused such a explosion of, uh, of interest in him? Well, Tom Swift uh, you know, has characteristics of being uh, very humble and very clever at the same time. And uh, so he will work on a problem you know, until he uh, comes up with a, uh, a solution. And so persistence. He's very persistent. It's much like Edison, the way he would go through so many different uh, materials to try to get a filament that would work in his incandescent light bulb. And uh, Tom Swift has a little of that going on, although we don't, as readers, we don't see as much of that detail, but the, the, uh, the narrator will give you some sense that, uh, that he worked on it, but oftentimes uh, things come a lot quicker to Tom Swift than they do to uh, people like Edison and others who do things in the real world. Um, Tom Swift's inventions also uh, don't have the engineering compromises that are often necessary. If we make something bigger, it requires more fuel, uh, or it runs slower. Uh, you know, we always have these compromises, and with Tom Swift, he could make his airships bigger. He could make them so that they could both use the gas to lift vertically or he could use the wings to, uh, to take off on a level field, uh, and either method would be uh, fine. And it's funny because he had a couple of airships uh, in the first series, uh, the Red Cloud being the first one, uh, and they used that design for, uh, uh, for a couple of years until there was an article in Scientific American which described the fallacy of the combined airship and dirigible balloon in 1914. And uh, it showed that instead of getting the best of both worlds, you'd actually get the worst. Uh, so 
if you were trying to take off from the level field, the gas bag would pr pr provide so much wind resistance it wouldn't work, or to have a gas bag large enough uh, would be a problem. And after that article came out, no more Tom Swift airships followed that design, <laughs> and they used more conventional biplane or uh, uh, other similar designs that were that were more you know, more close to what the, the real world provided. So they were concerned about the scientific veracity of what they were talking about. They listened to the critics. They, to a limited degree, but they never let it get in the way of a good story. And I'm only aware of one time where they changed uh, the actual text of a story in response to uh, criticism. Uh, a 1928 book called Tom Swift and His Talking Pictures. On page 180 of the first uh, printing, there is a discussion of Tom being captured by a, a bunch of uh, masked men. And there is a statement in there that says uh, something on the effect of, uh, by one or two signs, uh, Tom got the impression that some of these men were wealthy Jews. And uh, there were some complaints from the Anti-Defamation League. And the next printing, at least the next one I can identify, uh, does have uh, that text changed. Now what about the, uh, the author? Well, the name that appears on the books is Victor Appleton, but that is a pen name. Uh, the Stratomar Syndicate owned the pen name and created the series. So Edward Stratomar, who was born in 1862 and died in 1930, uh, created a, the Stratomar Syndicate, a book packager, if you will, and uh, they would create ideas for stories, sell them to publishers, and have ghostwriters write the stories. And he was very successful in what he did. Between 1905 and 1985, uh, some 1,385 books were produced through the Stratomar Syndicate. He also wrote on his own about 160 stories that were published as books. So uh, he was a very uh, big influence in American reading. Uh, and yet, not that well known. No, he isn't well yeah. known. He is known only because he created the Stratomar Syndicate. You know, people who collect other Stratomar Syndicate series, like Nancy Drew or the Hardy Boys, may have heard of the name Stratomar Syndicate, but they might think that the Stratomar was a, a made-up word. It wasn't a real person. Mm -hmm. And uh, so there is relatively little that is known about him. And uh, I'm working on a biography that will help to uh, uh, illuminate that as much as we can. Uh, he's, he was fairly private. Uh, the best information comes from the letters that are uh, at New York Public Library, and uh, they reveal information about him as a person, and more often uh, him as a, as a businessman than an author. And uh, so it's uh, interesting to see his uh, innovative ways of promoting books. He was doing things well in advance of what we would normally think of, uh, sending out direct mail campaigns with catalogs, or uh, sending out postcards uh, to suggest to uh, uh, people that he found in Blue Book that they should read this book uh, you know, at all costs. And uh, in this case, uh, it was an adult novel that, uh, that he was involved in writing. He was a businessman as, as much as he was a, uh, a literary man. It sounds like he, he, he comes up with the ideas, then he tenders out the, uh, the publishing side of it, but he also then was responsible for the marketing, so he, he did the front end and the back end. Edward Stratemeyer was involved in almost every phase of creating the books. He would sell the series idea to a, uh, uh, to a publisher. He would give them a list of proposed titles with short descriptions of the stories. The publishers would say, yes, we want to publish these uh, three stories, and they'd put some mark on the page and return that to him. Then Stratemeyer would write out a detailed outline, sometimes one page of single space, sometimes three or four pages, and uh, then he would uh, offer that to a ghostwriter. And uh, he had several ghostwriters. In the case of the Tom Swift series, the principal ghostwriter was Howard Garris. You might know him from his stories about Uncle Wiggily. Uh, but he wrote some 315 books for Stratomar. 
the uh, ghostwriter would, would write up this story, often taking about four weeks to do that, turn the story in. If it was acceptable, Stratemeyer would send a check and a release. The check was about $125 to $150 on average, and uh, the release basically transferred all the rights to Stratemeyer. It was a work for hire, no different than a computer programming job today or, or a lot of other things. Uh, then once uh, uh, Stratemeyer had it, uh, he would do any editing that was necessary, submit that to the publisher, and the publisher would uh, go through the typesetting process. Occasionally, for certain years, Stratemeyer was even involved in having the typesetted plates made. He was involved in so many aspects, but he didn't do that all the time. But this begs the question, why didn't he just do the whole thing himself then? Just he didn't have time. He had so many ideas. He had okay. more ideas than time to write them. Right. And sometimes uh, hmm. the skill of, uh, of ghostwriters like uh, Howard Garris to create a story that, uh, that the, the publishers and the kids wanted to read uh, was just a, a slightly more appealing than his own stories. Now, he personally wrote things like The Rover Boys, which were immensely popular had over five million copies sold by 1934, but the Tom Swift series had over six and a half million copies by that same point. What about like to change gears now to the actual collecting of, uh, of the books? Uh, uh, what about these the first runs of this particular series? Were they enormous? I don't have specific numbers on the, uh, the size of the first printings. The royalty records were calculated every uh, six months uh, by Gross and Dunlap and supplied to, uh, to Stratemeyer. Uh, they do give some indication that in the first year a given title might sell 5,000 copies or 10,000 copies. Not huge by today's standards, uh, to be sure. And uh, certainly uh, finding the, uh, the 1910 stories in the uh, dust jackets that are of that time period is extraordinarily difficult. Uh, as you get later in the series, they are easier to find. The, the, uh, the popularity had increased, the sales had increased, and there's less time for, for damage to occur. They also use better coated stock paper uh, for the uh, dust jackets, which are more likely to survive. Is there a first sort of series you mentioned? Right. The first Tom Swift series was 40 volumes. The first titles came out in 1910. There were five books in that year. Tom Swift's motorcycle, motorboat, airship, submarine boat, and electric runabout. Five more titles in 1911, five more in 1912, and then one book a year after that point to 1935. Um, the titles that tend to be hardest to find to get any copy of the of the story are the titles from the 1930s because the depression mm. sort of hurt the sales. The original publisher was Gross and Dunlap. I know they're thought of as a reprint house, but in this case, they were the original publisher. Now, Whitman uh, of Racine, Wisconsin, did reprint uh, the last ten of the first 38 Tom Swift books. That's Tom Swift and his airline express through Tom Swift and his planetsmen. Those copies are relatively easy to find and should not be expensive. That's not always true, of course, when you look online. What does that mean, though? If the Whitman uh, copy uh, came out without a dust jacket, you know, they're on pulp paper, they're just cheap reprints, they should normally be, you know, in the uh, the $20 to $50 range, depending on the title, Planet Stone being the latest and the most difficult one. Uh, Gross and Dunlap copies of uh, some of those same titles uh, might go for 25 for a title like uh, uh, Airline Express without a dust jacket, on up to... Uh, two or three hundred dollars for a planet stone without a dust jacket. Now, of course, with a dust jacket, the price has increased considerably. When I bought uh, Tom Sifton's planet stone dust jacket, it was around seven hundred and fifty dollars. I think they've sold a little bit more than that uh, since then, but not tremendously more. When I was getting them, it was before the internet. I was using uh, magazines like Yellowback Library, which was a, a monthly magazine that started in 1981 and is still being published. 
and uh, you know, people who were interested in these series books would uh, have, uh, uh, have opportunities to exchange books. So what do they look and feel like? like? Well, the first tomes of series, uh, they're in duodecimal format, that means about seven and a half inches tall. Uh, they're maybe inch and a half or so in thickness. Uh, early volumes tend to be a tan-colored cloth with a, uh, an oval surrounding the uh, title, a, a little portrait of Tom Swift and a fedora hat on the top, and then four pictures around the oval that show an airplane, an automobile, a motorcycle, and a motorboat. Uh, to indicate the types of uh, transportation that Tom was going to be involved in. On the spine of the books is another oval with a picture of Tom with a striped uh, coat and a hat, and uh, uh, then of course the, uh, the title usually done in red. The dust jackets, uh, depending on the time period, the ones that I prefer are the what we call the full-color dust jackets that started in 1924 and continued to the end of the series in 1935. And they have a full-color image on the front cover and a white spine on the dust jacket. There is another oval on the spine, but this one is an updated picture with a Tom with more of a uh, the flat cap or the buttons uh, down to cap, uh, cap that you sometimes see. Are there any special limited edition versions of the series that, that are worth going after? Yes, there are a couple of things. Now, one vintage item is a 1932 pair of paperbacks that were produced for Ked's athletic shoes, and uh, they were uh, basically giveaway premiums. They reprinted Tom Swift in his motorcycle and Tom Swift in his motorboat. They're about the size of a National Geographic magazine, but on, printed on pulp paper. Uh, the, uh, the cover design is similar to the cover of the hardcover books with the what we call a quadrant design with four pictures and an oval, but the uh, images are updated. And uh, these items are thin, about 84 pages, and uh, the text is in two columns, but it is unabridged. They were published by Lancaster Lord and Company, and uh, rather difficult to find because they're so fragile. Mm -hmm. uh, usually what happens is people, if they're gonna find one of those, they'll find the second one, motorboat. Motorcycle's a little harder to find, and I think the reason for that is that the motorcycle had a little coupon in the back where you could put your name and address and the name and address of a friend, and so the, uh, uh, the, the second volume might have uh, uh, been produced in a, perhaps twice as many copies. Those are called the Keds books uh, mm -hmm. among the collectors, and very few collectors have them. Um, of course, we do have them. Um, I, I, over the years, I've had five of the Keds books. I have three right now, uh, one of each title that are framed, and then a copy of, uh, uh, of Motorboat with the spare. Another format that's uh, difficult to find for the original Tom Swift series is uh, the, the better little books. Whitman had these small, chunky books. Sometimes they're generically called big little books, but the label on, and logo on this is for better little books. And they had Tom Swift in his giant telescope in 1939, and Tom Swift in his magnetic silencer in 1941. Magnetic silencer is the harder one to find, uh, both because it's later and it has a little, uh, in the corner of the pages, is a flip animation. Big little books have text on one side of the page and, and a little cartoon-like uh, illustration on the other. And uh, in this case, you were encouraged to flip through the book to get a little animation of uh, the giant cuckoo uh, as he's uh, running along. And uh, that uh, tends to, uh, to hurt the, uh, uh, the survivability of the books. In recent years, uh, Easton Press has published uh, six of the Tom Swift Senior books in uh, black leather-bound volumes. I think they're still available, probably about $60 a piece or something like that. And we have them. They're, they're, they're nice enough, but uh, you know, not absolutely essential. But you know, if you were looking for something uh, real esoteric out there, there, you know, there are things to find. It, you know, we uh, sometimes debate on, uh, on the internet 
you know, what comprises a complete Thompson mm -hmm. collection. Yeah. I mean, in five series in the past hundred years, there have been 105 books. So you get one copy of each of the books. Then you start saying, well, all the ones that came in Dust Jacket, I want to have those. And so you, you, know, you get the 38 Thompson Seniors and the 17 Thompson Juniors that came in Dust Jacket and the nine of the third series and, and so forth. And then otherwise there are paperbacks or, uh, or, or other special formats uh, that, uh, that exist. Is it achievable? Or, and if so, what kind of time frame you, that would you think that you're looking at if you're someone who's intrigued by this mission? Well, uh, chances are you know, people who decide that they're interested in Tom Swift will gravitate towards one series, probably the one that they encountered when they were a young person. Mm -hmm. And so for a baby boomer adult, they're going to say, well, I want Tom Swift Jr. You, know, you might start off and say, well, I want to have one of each of the 33 Tom Swift Jr. books, and I might want also the, uh, the Tom Swift Jr. activity book. So for the 33 books, you know, the first 29 books are relatively easy to find and should be fairly cheap. Generally, they should be under 25. Uh, now, that doesn't mean that people won't ask more than that, but asking is not the same as getting. Now, the last four titles, volumes 30 through 33, uh, number 30 is uh, Tom Swift and his G-Force Inverter, and Tom Swift and his Dinosaur Capsule, Tom Swift and his Cosmotron Express, Tom Swift and the Galaxy Ghost. Those titles were printed between, say, uh, 1968 and 1971. They are much harder to find. They did not sell well. It's not unusual to see Thompson and the Galaxy Ghost selling for uh, upwards of $300. You might see it on eBay perhaps only once, twice, three times, four times a year. Uh, so it's not a super common book. It's not impossible, uh, but you just have to be ready to, to spend the money because it's what's required to get that title. And sometimes people will offer volumes 1 through 29 and they'll say it's a complete set. Well, it's because they didn't look very hard. But you know, a lot of baby boomers will be uh, attracted to that. The activity book is, is fairly difficult to find. Uh, it's not uncommon for it to go anywhere from 50 to $150 because it's eight and a half by 11 size, fairly cheap paper, and, uh, and the kids were encouraged to, uh, to write in it. And uh, it was also published in 1977 after the uh, Thompson Junior series had more or less uh, been concluded. There were a couple of paperback reprints for some of the titles. Um, but with Thompson Jr., you can, um, you can suddenly say, well, now I have all 33. Uh, now I want to get all 33 in orange, fine pictorial covers, where the color picture is printed on the front cover, kind of like Blue Hardy Boys or Yellow Nancy Drew. And then I want to get all 17 in Dust Jacket, and then all 18 in the Blue Spine, a tough format that was only offered in 1962. All 10 of the paperbacks in the two sizes, and so you get a, a wide range. And then if that's not enough, then you start saying, well, maybe I'll start getting those foreign editions. Uh, get the British ones, get the uh, French ones, and, and uh, so forth. And Tom Swift Jr. especially has appeared in uh, maybe uh, you know, 15 to 20 different languages around the world. So you can uh, spread it out for quite a few years. Sure. And some of those foreign editions are nice because they have different artwork than the, uh, uh, than the American ones. A lot of the early Tom Swift Jr. books had illustrations inside the text, but so you do get some additional illustrations where the first Tom's Swift series only had whatever was on the jacket and the frontispiece illustration, so uh, it's nice to see uh, extra pictures sometimes. Just a final question, and that is, uh, other than the obvious, you know, that you may have encountered these books as a child and being captivated, taken by them, why collect Tom Swift? And why do you collect Tom well, Swift? I I think I was collecting Tom Swift because I had encountered them as a young person 
I, you know, I, ha I started off with you know, the, those, those six or eight books. I wanted to find more. I was calling all the bookstores about once a year to see if they had any of the Tom Sid books. Usually they did not. Every once in a while I'd get lucky and find one. Um, in time I found a, uh, a bookstore that was opening up that was going to specialize in, uh, in old children's books. I visited them just as they opened up and started spending so much time there they eventually had to hire me and I stayed with them for a dozen years. Uh, it was while I was there that I was able to complete my Tom Sith collection, such as it was, uh, uh, for the series that were available at the time. And it was very interesting because it was while I was there talking on the phone with somebody that I discovered that there was a third Tom Sith series. And then while I was working there, a fourth series came out uh, since leaving them in 2000. You know, a, a fifth uh, series has, uh, has come out. Is there some great edifying reason to get the books? Is there something you're going to learn about life? I, I'm not sure. I mean, we did create a book for our Tom Sith convention in July of 2010 where we called it the Tom Sith Guide to Life and uh, it was intended to be a sort of tongue-in-cheek life lessons you'd learn. Um, you know, for example, maybe if you're sending a gift to your sweetheart, maybe you should not reuse an old dynamite box that parents might misunderstand. You know, fun things like that yeah. that actually appeared in the story. should not do. I think that the original Tom Sith series uh, has sort of this feeling of maybe a slight alternate universe. It, it's a sense that, uh, that that those things could actually have occurred if somebody was working in their garage and, and just uh, was just clever enough. The Tom Sith Jr. series is more science fiction. The mm. third series is definitely science fiction set in the far future. The latter two series tried to bring it back to the present day, but it still felt a little bit more than any uh, ordinary person could achieve. Of course, Tom Swift in any generation was not ordinary. You know, I think that uh, being exposed to these books causes uh, an interest in science. You start learning little things like, oh, platinum comes from uh, from Russia, or you uh, learn about natural ra radioactive reactors in Africa. The funny thing is, is they were discussed in the Tom Swift Jr. books and then discovered for real uh, a decade or so later. And uh, so there are these interesting things that, that stick with you for a long period of time. And whether you're reading them as an adult and enjoying them, or that uh, you're a young uh, child and, and just sucking in all the information you can, uh, these are, are some of the things that, that make those books attractive. They're not great literature. Uh, you know, they're very formulaic and, and there's a lot of coincidence and the characters are not well described. But uh, they, uh, uh, they, they sit on, on what Owen Culper calls a golden shelf, something that you know you encounter, and they're they're almost unassailable for a long period of time. That it, that, that uh, you'll always like them. It's like a favorite piece of music or a favorite movie. Uh, it just sticks with you, regardless of, uh, uh, of what you might think about it if you had encountered it for the first time as an adult. I said finally before, but this is the final question, <laughs> <laughs> and that has to do with the, the actual collecting itself. Why do you think you collect? Well, I think uh, that, that series books, when you have a, a group of books that uh, are all bound similarly, always just makes me upset when a publisher has a series and then they start changing the formats wildly in both size and, and design. But uh, when you have a, si a, a series of books uh, and you know that you're missing something, there's that, that gap where it's like, gosh, I should get that. You know, you, you might have uh, Twain books and you might say, well, I have these five or six Twain books. Uh, but you might not feel compelled to get all of them because you know they're all over the map in terms of size and format and, and literary quality. Do you think that it's some sort of desire to order the world? Yeah, there's or a little bit of that, and, and I think that's especially true for male collectors. In working with the bookstore, I encountered a lot of collectors, and we found that the uh, female collectors tended to be more interested in, in story and character. 
and okay. the mail collectors were more interested in format and condition. Now that's a broad generalization, but it was a trend that I was noticing. It's something that I'm encountering in my own collecting is uh, you know a desire to uh, you know to get them all in nice condition and and, uh, and in a similar format if I can uh, because they look very impressive on the shelf. You know, <laughs> having a whole row of these. Uh, uh, these things together. So it's an aesthetic uh, thing yeah. as well. And it's yeah. a little like the people who buy sets of books to put on you know, the big wall as an impressive decorator item. Maybe they don't read them, but with, with Chomsky's books you get something that looks nice on the shelf and is also you know, fun to read. Uh, they're great, uh, great diversions. James Keyline, thanks so much for your time. Thank you.